Happy Sunday to you all. Glad to be together. Welcome to our second time together in this facility. And uh, still very new, thankful for your patience and uh, willingness to try new things as we experience the pain and challenges of something new as we work through that. And so as, as Josh said, all complaints can go to Pastor Pat. And uh, all encouragements can come right to my doorstep. You know what I'm saying? So, um, no, in all seriousness, as you see things that we may not see, um, come share perspective. Because uh, if you know me, I'm a, I'm a narrow focus kind of guy. So I only see what I can see. So come and, uh, and share. Um, if you've noticed, uh, July is almost gone. And August is almost here. It's around the corner, and so is our journey of about 48 or so sermons in the book of Acts that we started almost a year ago in September. If you remember, we kicked that all off with a sermon series titled, Your Kingdom Come. And praise God, His kingdom has come. It started with the coming king, the son of God named Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, and with him his kingdom, calling and ushering people into his eternal kingdom as they respond in faith to the one true king. Individual by individual, the kingdom grows, place by place it spreads, here, there, and over there. Like wildfire, it burns ever hotter. Starting there in Jerusalem, it expanded God's kingdom by God's message, carried by God's people, empowered by God's spirit. And it goes forth, and people get saved. The body of Christ grows and expresses itself in new ways as a new local body is established, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. And we know through our study in Acts that um, God spread the good news of the gospel in many different ways with many different people. And one such man, a significant character in the book of Acts, but not the main character, as we will be yet reminded again in this text, is a man that we know well, a Jewish man, and his name is Saul better known to us by his Greek or Latin name, which is Paul. Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9. And from that point, God uses this man in amazing ways to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across three profound missionary journeys, most of which is on the western and the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Today we are in Acts chapter 21 where Paul has come back to Jerusalem after his third and final missionary journey. Where last week, Pastor Pat opened this chapter as we consider Paul's life and the immense persecution that came to Paul as he was faithful to minister the word. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. And as you get there, Maybe go ahead and do that now. Open your Bibles. I want to paint a quick roadmap for our time this morning. 
This morning's sermon is titled Gospel Freedom and Church Unity. Gospel Freedom and Church Unity. And I want to spend some time considering Paul's visit to Jerusalem and how that pertains to our gospel freedom. What is that freedom that we have in the face of the gospel? And second, what is the connection between our freedom in the gospel and the unity that ought to be present in God's church? So a simple enough roadmap, as it were. What is freedom and how does that intersect unity? So if you have your Bibles, let's get to the text. Starting in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, follow along as I read. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands... There are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have heard, excuse me, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. As for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself among with them, along with them, and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering present for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tropimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. 
And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed him, crying out, Away with him. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, possibly uh, the year AD 57, approximately 24 years after his conversion experience back in Acts chapter 9, 24 years, approximately 20 years when Paul first meets with Peter in Jerusalem for the very first time, and roughly five years from the beginning of his third missionary journey. Eager to meet with the church and share all that God has done, Paul meets with James, the brother of Jesus, not to be confused with the disciple of James, the brother of John, who we know was killed back in Acts chapter 12. Verse 18 doesn't communicate any other apostle as being present during Paul's visit. Instead, communicates that the church there in Jerusalem is more than likely shepherded by James's, uh, Jesus' brother James and other elders during this period of time. Verse 19 tells us that after greeting them, Paul began to tell them one by one all the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles. And as they hear the testimony of God's amazing work, they glorify God for what God alone has done. What a sweet picture. Inside the early church, individuals go out faithfully, taking the message of hope with them. God is on the move, and He does amazing things. And then those individuals come back and they share all that God has done and it stirs worship in the heart of the church. I want church culture like that. Don't you? Like faithful going, faithful reporting, not for our sake, Right, not for building this little church, not for the sake of redemption, really, not for my own ego or Pat's ego or Josh's ego, but that God might be glorified in our minds and our hearts Amen. because of what He's doing. Amen. Amen. I feel like it could take like a couple hours and just talk about that. Like, how can we grow as a church in that pursuit? together, cultivating that culture? How can we learn from one another? How can we stir one another towards that end? Maybe another time, Lord willing. Do you think you'd ever get tired of that kind of culture? Hearing testimony of what God is up to. I get excited thinking about it. I think you probably do too. Think back on your life when people shared very personal stories of God's amazing work in their life to you. Maybe it's around a coffee table or in your home. I would propose that is something that should never get old 
because hearing testimony of our great God that stirs worship to Him, I would propose is what we were created for. Side note. Back to Acts chapter 21, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. All right, Paul, that's sweet, what God has done with you. We are celebrating with you what God has done among the Gentiles. But as you've been ministering to the Gentiles, our people have heard that you've been teaching Jews that live amongst the Gentiles not to live as Jews any longer. That you've been teaching them to abandon our customs, forsaking Moses and circumcision. So here's what we think you should do, Paul. You should go with these four men, men of our church, who have already undergone a vow. And you should sponsor them by paying their expenses for the sacrifices that they are going to do at the end of their vow. And by the way, while doing that, you yourself should go get purified. What should we make of all of that? If you're like me, you have lots of questions. The first question that I think is somewhat obvious is, was Paul teaching the Jews not to abandon their Jewish customs while ministering to Gentiles? Like, is that a true statement? What's the point of purifying oneself inside the Jerusalem church? Why would they have him do that? What motivates the church elders to ask Paul to do it? Are they requiring Paul to participate in Jewish laws as a means to be a part of his body? Is that what's going on here? Like, what role does or should Jewish law play in the lives of believers who are still Jewish but profess faith? Like, aren't we getting dangerously close here to adding the law back into the gospel? Wasn't this matter decided back in Acts chapter 15, almost eight or nine years ago? For me, it raises questions concerning what is needed for salvation. And by extension, what walking in newness of life requires post-conversion. So how do we navigate through this text, which at first glance is complex and seems very confusing? I would propose that we must first consider what is necessary for salvation. And it seems elementary. 
But as we might misunderstand here and from our own life experience might show, adding something, whatever it might be, to the gospel beyond repentance and belief in Jesus is no longer salvation by faith alone. To be ushered into the forever family of God, the diverse, widespread family. Think about this with me for a moment. Where each individual is unique and fearfully and wonderfully made. Although there are numerous expressions of people inside this family. Look around the room just right now. Not a single one of us is the same. God broke the mold when he made you. In the midst of all of that uniqueness, we all enter through the common door of Jesus Christ. And that door, that gate, is only through the one true king. The one good shepherd. The one true keeper of the house. Jesus. Because he is the Messiah. The Christ. Because of his life, death, and glorious resurrection, where God placed on his shoulder the penalty of our sin, our sin before God, Jesus took that punishment and he declared us clean, righteous, fit, fully known, and heirs of the Most High God. And it's only by faith in Jesus. That we are saved. Amen. It's not faith in Jesus and add a little something else. Not faith in Jesus and a little community service. It's not faith and some physical fitness requirements that I would fail. It's not faith in Jesus and getting your life put together in some false facade. It's not faith in Jesus and some elements of success in your job, in your parenting, the lack of failures in any and all of those roles or pursuits in your life. It's not about that. It's faith and faith alone in Jesus that saves you and I. Nothing more and nothing less. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Earlier on in Galatians chapter 5, Paul charges the people saying, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So if this salvation is only acquired by faith alone, and Paul continues to preach our gospel freedom, freedom from the labor of the law, freedom from earning God's favor by observing certain days, or feasts, or being circumcised, because the gospel, because salvation, and you're standing before God, you no longer need to labor to earn. You can rest in the completed work of Jesus as God's son. If you're here this morning and you have placed your faith 
and your allegiance in Jesus, then you are free from the power and the penalty of death, and you are free from the hard road of needing to earn God's favor. Praise God. So if that is true, if what is required for salvation is faith alone, what does it look like to walk in newness of life post-conversion? Are we free to do whatever, whenever, however? In other words, what does gospel freedom look like? I would propose this, that God's word has much to say on the idea of being free in Christ. God's words has much to say about the call of obedience for those that are free in Christ. That true freedom is always connected with our former self as a slave and God's gracious act to release us from bondage and shepherd us towards himself. Our world has its own definitions and meaning of freedom, do they not? But as a believer in Christ, I believe that we can flirt with the world's definition instead of a biblical one. So what should inform our gospel freedom? In short, I believe that there ought to be two guardrails for how biblical Christians ought to consider their gospel freedom. The first is what God's directly, word directly says and commands. What does God's word say? And the second guardrail is where God's word does not directly state, we are to seek privately what would honor God most. Those are the two guardrails. What God's word says and how we have sought to honor God most. It's what Paul's words say in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In between those two guardrails lies our gospel freedom. God's direct word and our heart to honor the Lord in what we do. So what does all of that have to do with Acts chapter 21? How does that intersect between Paul, James, and the other elders at Jerusalem? Why is a review of salvation by faith alone, which results in gospel freedom, needed? Simply put, because without that, you and I could misunderstand James' request to Paul. And Paul's motivation in this text to do it. Verse 26, after, after James has this little odd request before Paul, what does the text say? It says, then Paul took them in. And the next day, he purified himself among them, and he went to the temple. Paul did it, in short. 
And Paul, if your words are true in Galatians chapter 5, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is worth anything in Christ, if, if the Jerusalem council back in Acts chapter 15 put the gospel under the microscope and found it to be through faith alone, Pastor Pat preached on that. You remember that sermon? And it's what James recounts for Paul and the other Gentile believers traveling with him in this text. Why ask Paul to do this? Is there a different class of citizen inside the family of God? Is there a different requirement for Jewish believers than on Gentile believers? By no means. Instead, James is motivated out of love and concern for the people that he shepherds, understanding the significant role that their people's heritage have played in their lives. And he understands all of that context and he asks Paul to show honor to the body there in Jerusalem by participating in two of their cultural customs. The first is sponsoring individuals in their vows, and the second is being purified after traveling amongst Gentiles. It is church unity that motivates Paul and the elders there in Jerusalem to fight for unity. It is important to note here that nowhere along Paul's journey has Paul advocated for Jews to throw off their customs and their heritage. In fact, it's because of Paul's deep love for his heritage that he's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost so that he might participate in it. So deeply concerned with the unity of the church that Paul, fully free to discern for himself what he ought to do, he chooses to sacrifice anything not central to the gospel for the sake of helping preserve and build the kingdom of God. Paul's love for his fellow believers motivates him to serve them, which are his own words in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. I would argue that Paul did not need to do this. I think you could make the argument, might be small, but that Paul may or may not have wanted to do it. The text doesn't tell us. Because the ultimate point is that Paul was willing to do it, was willing to serve, to become all things to all people. To the Jews, he became a Jew, and to the Gentiles, a Gentile. What an example of selfless serving for the sake of unity. In closing, I think in our Christian culture, we are familiar with the idea of gospel freedom. Our liberties that we have because of what Christ has done for us. I think that's something that isn't a surprise or isn't that profound to anybody this morning. What might be more convicting and eye-opening is the two guardrails that God has put forth 
for us to walk in freedom? The first question is, how well do we know and do we obey what God directly says as we walk in our freedom? How well do you know? How well do you obey? Second guardrail is, how central is honoring God, not simply doing what you want or what you would like to do in discerning what you do do? That God's word doesn't directly address. And then thirdly, how ready are you and I to serve one another for the sake of you? Even at the expense of some, maybe even many, of your liberties and your freedoms in the gospel. Verse 27 through 36 ends with Paul going to the temple and a number of Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, recognize him, right? He's there for two and a half or three years. And so Paul's a well-known guy. And so they see him there and they stir up the crowd and they begin to beat him. And thankfully, some Roman soldiers come in and save his life, although it starts the beginning of the end for Paul, which Pat will pick up on next week. And the irony of all of that is that Paul was out serving the body of believers by obeying Jewish customs. And other Jews accused him of not doing that. That is the irony of all of that. That he was accused of speaking against the people, the temple, and their customs. Paul was out even with the very real concern for his life chose to strive to preserve the unity in the church for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, laying aside his rights and arguably his preferences for the sake of loving other people, for the sake of unity. A couple of questions for reflection as we close. What might be ways that God would be calling you, calling me, to sacrifice some of your rights and your freedoms for the sake of church unity? How is your heart towards those that discern differently than you? How open-handed are you with your own convictions? Convictions that you have Seeking to honor the Lord, but aren't shared by fellow believers, maybe even believers in this church. Are we too quick and forget the firm foundation of what is required for salvation? And do we create stumbling blocks before others because of our own convictions and our own preferences? My prayer for myself as a highly preferential guy, a highly opinionated one, is that I would be and that our church would be individuals that hold fast to the truth of the gospel, celebrating our freedom in the gospel 
and are quick to value unity and serve one another in love as the Lord leads. Amen? May we be a church that strives for that wherever it can be manifested. Let's pray. Oh God, you are gracious and ever patient with us, ready and willing to continue to shepherd us and lead us as you would have. So amazing is the reality of the gospel and our freedom that you have given to us, that we were once slaves and we are now free, that we are free because of faith in Jesus alone, not because of any other work done. And so, Lord, we are, we are now free to discern with what your word says as we walk in newness of life and where your word does not speak directly how we might use our life to best honor and seek you. God, I pray that you would be people that walk between those two guardrails. And then, Lord, I pray over the top of all of that, God, as we hold firm to your word, we would hold loose our convictions and our preferences as we seek for unity in this body. As we seek for unity amongst the churches in Greeley, and beyond, for we are one church, your kingdom. God, may it let us hold fast to the gospel, standing firm. But let us also seek for unity in the midst of all that, Lord Jesus. Continue to grow us, continue to grow me in that perspective. We love you. Be grateful for the reality that you do and you will bring that about. In your great name, we pray. Everybody said, Amen.